Our first reading comes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. What wrong did your ancestors find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no one dwells, and I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through the town of Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his, his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have been given you living water. The woman asked, said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his children and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all the things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Remain standing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak to us, reveal yourself to us. So I'd pray in light of that truth that I as preacher would just get out of the way. Far less of me and far more of you. That your people gathered would be edified and your son, Jesus, glorified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? This year we've been working our way through the Gospel of John, allowing the seasons of the church year to guide us. And that's meant we've kind of moved around a lot in the book as the seasons of Lent and Easter and Pentecost invited us to focus in on particular sections. As Orvin mentioned, we now return to a systematic approach to the gospel and go back to where we left off, at the beginning of chapter 4. And two conversations dominate this section of John, two conversations with two radically different people. In fact, in their cultural framework, these two people, Nicodemus and the woman of Samaria, we find polar opposites. You might remember our exploration of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. He's a man, wealthy, a ruler, powerful, the religious authority in the Jewish faith from a family of heroes. And he comes to Jesus yearning for the kingdom, and he's very clear on what that is. That's the restoration of Israel, the doing away of the Romans. And he believes that Jesus can have a hand in bringing that future about. But Jesus turns the tables on that conversation. Nicodemus, you think the problems of our world are out there with those people and those problems and those institutions? No, Nicodemus. The the reason the world is not as God intended is you. 
It is every single human being. And so you, along with everyone else, must be born again. You don't need an amendment of a part of you. You need the renewal of the whole. So come to me and see me lifted up. And that renewal can begin in you. And then on the heels of that conversation comes the one that Nick just read for us with an unnamed woman from Samaria, where Nicodemus was a learned scholar, she's illiterate. Where he was at the top of the social ladder, he's, she's at the bottom. Where he is highly respected, she is despised. But she too is invited to follow, invited to come into the kingdom, and that should bring us up short undercut any feelings within us of any sort of superiority over anyone else. For Jesus' kingdom is all of grace. It is for all. It can't be earned. It is a gift. Would we but linger there? But Jesus invites us to press in, to overhear. For she's not the same woman at the end of the conversation as she was at the beginning. And by the work of his word and his spirit, may that be the case for us as well. Now, as Nick read the conversation, it's just about as confusing as Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, right? It seems to flit from topic to topic. It's dizzying. From a simple request for a drink leads to the exposing of racial tension, then to the mechanics of wells, and then to her complex love life, and then to a theological debate about the proper place for worship. The conversation actually has one thread. It's on one topic. From beginning to end, this is a conversation about worship. The word worship comes from the old English word worthship. It invites us to ask, what do we give ultimate worth to? That is what we worship. That is what we worship. And what we worship is one of the primary concerns of the biblical story. Let me put it this way. What is the thing that God is constantly addressing in his people? The thing that stirs up his holy, loving anger more than anything else. The thing that he sees as the problem with the world, the problem with our lives. It's idolatry. Having other gods. Worshipping things other than him. You might think, well, that's petty of God. How self-centered, how narcissistic. But it's not for his own sake he's concerned by such things. It's for our sake. See, in Martin Luther's commentary on the Ten Commandments, he says this, that we can't break commandments two through ten without first breaking commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. What's he saying? He's inviting a particular kind of reflection on the other commandments. He's saying, you will become a society of overwork, a people who can't rest, can't take Sabbath, when you ascribe worth to something other than me. Your relationships will become marked by envy and jealousy and lack of commitment when you ascribe worth to things other than me. You will become a people who will solve problems through violence when you ascribe worth to things other than me. You will mishandle truth to the detriment of society and your relationships when you ascribe worth 
to things other than me. God's primary concern for what we give worship to is not for his sake. It's for our sake. So for a moment, let's put ourselves in the place of this woman of Samaria. As Jesus invites us along with her to reflect on what we worship. What holds ultimate worth. And the transformation that is brought about through true worship. If you have your Bible or bulletin handy, I'll invite you to turn to John chapter 4. As we reflect on what we worship, what holds ultimate worth, and the transformation brought about through true worship. So first, what do we worship? Our text opens up to a tension, right? There's there's a conflict beginning to brew between Jesus and the Pharisees, and he knows this is eventually going to lead to his death, but the hour's not yet come. So he retreats back to Galilee. And the journey meant, verse 4, that he had to go through Samaria. Even from those opening verses, our first century readers are scandalized. Well, yes, the shortest route from Judea to Galilee goes through Samaria, but no self-respecting Jew would ever travel there. The Samaritans were a people that had come about when the Assyrians had conquered that area of Israel. They deported everyone of note, and then they resettled the land with five different pagan nations. They soon intermarried, creating this syncretistic faith between paganism and Judaism. They did away with most of the Holy Scriptures except an amended version of the books of Moses. They built a competing temple on Mount Gerizim, which the Jews came to destroy. For the Jewish people, the Samaritans were racially and religiously impure. To touch anything, anything that a Samaritan had handled would be to become ritually unclean. Along the way through his journey, Jesus and the disciples are tired. Jesus sends the disciples into the town of Saqqara, a town of about 500, to get food, and he sits down at the well to rest. And along the road comes a Samaritan woman. The rabbis forbade men to talk to women in public not even their own family members. There was even a group of Pharisees called the bruised and bloody, and they said, you can't even look at a woman in public. And so if they saw a woman as they were walking down the street, they would close their eyes and they'd bump into buildings and trees, bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Now the daily visit to the well was the most menial of all the tasks a woman of a village would do. And so they would often go together, make it a social occasion in the beginning or the end of the day to avoid the heat. But here is this woman coming alone at high noon, the hottest part of the day. There was even a well in town, and she goes to the one on the outskirts. She wants to encounter no one. Later, we discover the reason. She had had five husbands. The man she's living with, not her husband. Small town, traditional views on marriage. Can you imagine what they would have thought of her, said about her, how they treated her? In the woman of Samaria, we find the most marginalized and rejected person 
of a marginalized and rejected people. And upon seeing her, Jesus speaks to a woman in public. Verse 7, can I have a drink? If the first century reader was scandalized by his travel route, imagine now as Jesus crosses over every single social, moral, cultural, religious barrier to interact with a woman that in his culture they would have expected he should have had nothing to do with. And the Samaritan woman expresses the shock of her culture. Verse 9, how is it that you, a man, a Jew, ask of me a drink, a woman of Samaria? In this simple request, she experiences something so different. Acceptance, where she'd only known rejection. Connection, where she'd only known aloneness. Love, where she'd only known hate. Grace has stopped her dead in her tracks. She's disarmed, a tough, self-protecting exterior softened. She's intrigued. She wants to know more. How is it that you, a Jew, would ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? If you knew who I was, responds Jesus, you would have asked me, and I'd give you living water. Now, there's two different meanings of that phrase, living water. The first is moving water, as opposed to stagnant water. She seems to think of this first meaning. How could you give me that? You don't have anything to draw water with. And Jacob gave us this well. Are you saying you're greater than Jacob? Jesus isn't thinking of moving water. He's thinking of a second meaning. Referenced in our reading from Jeremiah. As the prophet is reflecting on the people of Israel turning away from the living God. Exchanging worship of the Lord for worship of other things. And he says they're turning away from the fountain of living water, and they're digging for themselves wells that hold no water. And so in verse 13, Jesus presses in with this meaning. I am offering you the fountain of living water. I'm wanting to reveal to you where true worth lies that will bubble up in you to eternal life, to something glorious, beautiful, transformative. But she's still thinking of the first meeting. Oh, give me this water so I won't be needing to come back here anymore. Jesus once more nudges her toward the second meeting. Go, call your husband and come back. Seems a very odd change of topic, doesn't it? Or a left turn in the conversation. But it's a very natural progression. Dear woman, what are you ascribing ultimate worth to? Where are you digging a well in search of water and have come up empty? Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband. You're quite right. You've had five and the man you're with now isn't your husband. He doesn't bring this up to expose her, condemn, shame, judge her. He's seeking to awaken her. Where is your ultimate worth? Where have you dug a well and come up dry, empty, parched? Now, of course, we don't know the circumstances that led up to those five marriages. 
her current living situation? What might she have been seeking in them? Acceptance, love, security. Jesus is asking, did you dig a well there? Did you find what you were looking for? If we were at the well, what would Jesus' question awaken in us? Where have we dug a well in search of water and come up empty? Remember about 15 years ago, a man came to see me, deeply thirsty. He dug a well. He'd located his ultimate worth in being thought well of, his reputation. And it would lead him to constantly defend and justify, always trying to put a particular spin on his words and his actions. He would rarely, if ever, admit he was wrong. And when he did, it would only go so deep. And as a result, his personal relationship suffered. There were a few things that he'd done in his past that utterly tormented him. Even though he knew intellectually God's forgiveness, he couldn't forgive himself. Why? Because they were things that revealed that he wasn't the man he wanted everyone to think that he was. He dug a well and come up empty. Where are you locating your ultimate worth? Where have you dug a well and are left dry, parched, thirsty? There's a powerful quote from the late American writer David Foster Wallace, something I dust off every six to eight months because it is just an incredible quote. He himself was not a religious person, but he said this, everybody worships, everybody And the compelling reason for choosing maybe some sort of God to worship is pretty much everything else will eat you alive. Worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel like you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power, and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll always feel stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Everybody worships. Everybody. And the compelling reason for choosing maybe some sort of God to worship is everything else will eat you alive. Where have you dug a well in search of something that is worth and ended up dry, thirsty, parched? Having brought her to a place where she sees this, where she's yearning to grab a hold of something that has worth, they are now, verse 19, on the same page. Okay, I see, stranger, that you are inviting me to true worship, but this brings to me a big problem. Where am I supposed to go? We Samaritans say it's on Mount Gerizim, you Jews, in Jerusalem. So which is it? Now, Jesus doesn't dismiss the importance of the question or deny that there's an answer to it. He does not do as we often do, try and relieve theological tension by jettisoning truth. 
But instead, he responds to it by saying, your primary question shouldn't be where, but who. And she still wants a definitive answer. She says, well, I'll wait till Messiah comes. And his response is, I who speak to you am he. And he's, he's not just saying, I'm Messiah. <laughs> I've given you a definitive answer to your question. He's invoking the divine name. The name that no one else would utter. I am Yahweh. I am of ultimate worth. What I have come to do is of ultimate worth. And it all hinges on my hour. He keeps saying, the hour is coming, the hour is coming. And as we've seen in our time with John, that word hour is a key word, always pointing to his death and resurrection. Make me the work that I've come to do of ultimate worth, and it will become a fountain in you bubbling up into eternal life. For the Father is seeking worshipers, not for his sake, for our sake. For true worship will bubble up in us into something beautiful, glorious, transformative. And we see that, don't we, in her encounter with Jesus. She's not the same person at the end of the conversation as she was at the beginning. Here's a woman, shunned, ostracized. Can you imagine what the townsfolks said of her, thought of her, how they treated her? And yet, at the end of the conversation, she rushes back into town, announcing to everyone, come and see the one who has told me everything that I ever did. More than you even know, more than you've ever gossiped about. Come and see. His love, his grace, his forgiveness has made her new. We see this as well with the disciples the story sort of glazes over the detail as if it was nothing, but it's not nothing. They went into a Samaritan town to buy food. Jesus wouldn't even touch something a Samaritan had handled, let alone consume it. And yes, they come back to see Jesus speaking with a woman, and they're marveling at it, but no one says anything. There's not a sneer, a judgmental comment. Seeing his ultimate worth is changing them. This past spring, a group of little tears went through N.T. Wright, surprised by hope. And in the book, he writes this about the transformative impact of worship. He says, one of the primary laws of human life is you become what you worship. Not only that, you reflect that back to the object and outward to the world around you. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, customers, not as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, preferences, practices, past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sexual objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, pawns. You become what you worship. You reflect that back to the object and outward to the world around. Worship King Jesus. You come to reflect the character of the king. 
Worship the one who cared for those at the margins. We become those who care for the margins. Worship the one who stepped over every single barrier to show the woman of Samaria kindness, grace, love, and forgiveness. We become the kinds of people who step over every barrier to show others grace, kindness, love, forgiveness. True worship will bubble up in us to eternal life, bubbling up in us to reflect a new creation, a new humanity, point to his kingdom come. In his book, The Silver Chair, from the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis reflects beautifully on the truth of this text. It's a fitting place for me to close. It's the scene where Jill first encounters the lion Aslan, the Jesus figure of the story. Now, Jill has done something to terribly hurt her friend Scrub, and she's out in the forest, and she's terribly thirsty, and she keeps hearing this babbling of a brook, and she goes in search of the noise, and as she gets closer and closer, her thirst gets deeper and deeper, and then she's brought up short. She's dropped dead in her tracks. Why? Because between her and the stream is a lion. She knew at once that the lion had seen her. For its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away as if it knew her quite well. If I run, she thought, it's going to chase me down. And if I go forward, I'm going to go right into its mouth. She couldn't take her eyes off of it. Couldn't move. How long that lasted, she could not be sure. But it seemed like hours. The thirst became so bad. She almost felt like she wouldn't mind being eaten by the lion if she could just get a sip of that water first. If you are thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, if you are thirsty, you may drink. Of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about the animals in this other world and realized that it was the lion speaking. She'd seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. Did not make her any less frightened, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered only by a look and a low growl. As Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd taken a step closer. Do do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming 
another step near. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water I give will never be thirsty again. It will become in them a fountain welling up to eternal life, bubbling over to reflect a new humanity, a new creation, pointing to his kingdom come. There is no other stream. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.